The night before our Lord was to be crucified, he gathered his disciples in the upper room as they observed the Passover. The Passover had been observed for 1,400 years. They were looking forward to what would take place on the cross. The first Passover occurred in Egypt. It's when the Israelites were going to be delivered from their bondage of over 400 years. And God told the people through Moses that they were to kill a lamb, a spotless lamb, take the blood and apply it over the doorposts and over the lintel, and the death angel would pass over. That's where they got the term Passover. In other words, the firstborn would not be killed. One thing that's important to realize is that this was not just for the Israelites. This was for the Egyptians also. Anyone who believed what God had said and as he commanded, then they would be spared death. And so this was a preview of what the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, would do on the cross. It was a foreshadow of that most important event of all history. And when Jesus Christ was with the disciples in the upper room, we have something that we call the Last Supper. Indeed, it was Christ's Last Supper, but in another way, it was the First Supper. It was the first time that the Lord's Supper, as we recognize it today, was instituted. Now we look back at the cross. The reason this ritual is so important is because, first of all, we're commanded to partake of it. Jesus Christ, as he was going through this first ritual inaugurating it, when he was completed, he said, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. And that's what we do today. We obey that command. But the significance of this ritual is the fact that it is portraying who Christ is and what he did. We realize that Jesus Christ is the unique one of the universe. He's not like the other members of the Godhead, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, because he's also man. And he's not like any other man because he's also God. We have two elements in this ritual. The first one is the bread. It's unleavened bread. And unleavened bread speaks of Christ's perfect humanity. Jesus Christ could not sin. If he had even sinned one time, there would be no salvation for any of us. And so... Jesus Christ, on numerous occasions, would tell others that He is the bread of life. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have access to God the Father. And so, in that room, the upper room, the night before He was to be crucified, He changed what had been going on for 1,400 years to what we are going to recognize this morning. 
Can you think of that for just a moment? 1,400 years of observing a particular ritual, and then overnight it changed. The reason it changed is because Jesus Christ knew that the next day he was going to be crucified on the cross. The reality of what they had been looking for for so long was going to take place. Then within 50 days after his resurrection, the day of Pentecost occurred and another dispensation would occur. And so we have been observing this ritual, the church, for approximately 2,000 years. And we will continue to do it until Christ comes. Just like the people in Egypt had the opportunity, any of them, whoever they were, to believe the mandate from God and observe it, and they would be spared. So it is with us today. Whenever you partake of this bread and drink of the cup, you are publicly professing your trust in Jesus Christ. We are the royal family of God, gathered together in order to obey God's mandate. So we observe this in a corporate fashion, that is, we all do it together, but it's also an individual experience because... Each one of us are challenged to see if we can focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Him. That's the reason for this ritual. We don't partake of it in order to cover our sins or forgive sins. We don't do it in order to be closer to God or to be spiritual. We do it for the reason that is given in the Bible, and that is to remember Jesus Christ. We live in a fast-paced world. It's easy to forget what is really important. And this brings us back to priorities. Jesus Christ. The cup speaks of Christ's work on the cross. Most people concentrate on the physical pain and torture that our Lord underwent. And certainly there was plenty of that. But it was His spiritual death on the cross that paid for our so great salvation. God darkened the earth, supernatural darkness, and then He poured out our sins upon Jesus Christ. That is our so great salvation. That is what the cup speaks of. You don't have to be a member of Country Bible Church in order to partake of this ritual because you are qualified if two things exist. First of all, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're qualified. And the other qualification is that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we're going to take a few moments before we dispense with the elements for you to do a little evaluation in your own soul to make sure that you have taken care of any sins by simply acknowledging them to God privately. And when you do that, as a believer, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're ready to take of this Eucharist, this communion, this Lord's Supper in the reverent way in which we should. So now we'll pause to have a few moments of silent prayer. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this honor to be here, to focus upon our Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect body, his sinless perfection. We pray that you will flood our souls with our knowledge of him that we've gained from your word as we partake of the bread. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his strike we are healed. On that occasion, our Lord took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and said, This is my body that is given for you. Take and eat thereof. Again, Heavenly Father, as we pause to take of the cup, we'll be eternally grateful for that such great sacrifice for our, for our side and for us. We pray that you will help us to remember all the doctrines of soteriology, Christology, as we partake of this cup, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. It is our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. And he, God the Father, laid upon him, God the Son, the iniquity of us all. God demonstrates his love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. On that same occasion, the Lord took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Take and drink thereof. We will stand and sing hymn number 258. We'll sing it softly on the third verse and crescendo on the last verse. Let us stand as we sing. I just noticed that I didn't turn my mic off during the singing. My apologies, especially those of you in the back. Do we need to stop and rebound again? Okay, we're going to do something a little different this morning instead of continuing where I was in our special Christians, Government, and Romans 13. We're going to do a mini-review. I'm going to start where we began and kind of bring us up to speed to where we left off. One reason I'm doing this is because you can't hear it enough times. Furthermore, I've had a few reports that I'm going too fast. So I thought, well, I'll just give it to them again. This is not going to be in its completeness, but it's going to help us focus on reality. For centuries, people have struggled against tyranny. In fact, there were 
those pilgrims that left Europe to come here in order to have religious freedom. They risked the danger and the long voyage and the unknown hostile Indians and all the other things in order to be free. And as time went by, uh, they were under the tyranny of King George III of England. And it's, it's just the nature of mankind that this struggle continues. And we as believers have to be grounded in the Bible, in, his, in God's Word, to realize what our relationship with the government should be. And that's what prompted this Christian's government in Romans 13. Unfortunately, all of us, over a period of a long time, have been dumbed down because we're not taught history. And our thinking is not the same as it was when the founders of our country decided to write a Declaration of Independence in order to no longer suffer the tyranny of the authority that was over them. And now, again, all of us are faced with making decisions with regards to authority that is over us. And I present three viewpoints here. And then I go to the Scriptures in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. This isn't the only Scripture that deals with our relationship with the government, but it's probably the most detailed. So I'm going to put the notes on the board. And you can follow along if you'd like. I have a few uh, references in the Bible that you might want to go to. Dr. David Ramsey gave us an oration describing the State of the Union, July the 4th, 1794. Now, that was eight years. Oh, do we have... Uh... It's coming on? Okay. We're so high-tech here, we have more than one screen, aren't we something? Of course, it doesn't always come on. <laughs> so, Dr. Ramsey uh, gave an oration. This was just eight years after the bloody war of independence that lasted six years and great sacrifice. And so it was somewhat of a state of the union address. What were things like then? So we have a few lines here that is that from that oration. He says, No enormous salaries are received by the few at the expense of the many. No taxes are levied, but such as are paid equally on the legislator and private citizen. So great is the responsibility of men in high station among us that it is the fashion to rule well. It is one of the peculiar privileges we enjoy in consequence of independence that no individual, no party interest, no foreign influence can plunge us into war. The sovereignty rests in ourselves, and instead of receiving the privileges of free citizens as a boon, that would be as a favor, from the hands of our rulers, we define their powers by a constitution of our own framing, which prescribed to them that thus far they might go, but no farther. The wise people never farm a new township without making arrangements that 
secure to its inhabitants the instruction of the youth and the public, public preaching of the gospel. Hence, their children are early taught to know their rights and to respect themselves. To possess such a country with the blessings of liberty and peace together, with that security of person and property, which results from a well-ordered, efficient government, is or ought to be a matter of constant thankfulness. Oh, if we could say that today. But that's not, that's not what we have, is it? There have certainly been changes and not for the better. What I'm going to show you is a list of a few things I came up with that people that are still alive today can remember. In other words, we're just going back a hundred years in history, which is not long. Like I said, there are people who are that age and older that were around when these things that I'm about to present to you were a fact in our own country. There was no property tax. There was no income tax. There was no inheritance tax. There was no capital gains tax. There was no Social Security tax. And I just limited at that because I could probably list a dozen more. But you get the gist. People had real money. Gold and silver coins. Because they had real money that was not inflatable, houses in 1910 cost about $5,000. That won't even make a down payment on a car these days. There were peace officers rather than police officers. I can remember that. I know to most teenagers I'm a fossil, but I'm not really that old. At least in my own mind. Peace officers. Today, the police are looking more like the military than police. There was no political correctness or celebration of diversity or multiculturalism. There was no African Americans, Mexican Americans, Asian Americans. There were just Americans. People enjoyed true privacy. No surveillance cameras, no eavesdropping, no searches, no, no body searches or scans. Now, in 1910, the airplane had been invented, but there wasn't many of them. And most people wouldn't want to get on them anyway. Of course, today, we go to the airport. And I find it offensive to be treated like a criminal and searched. And you know what's going on with the full body scans, especially for females and all. There was no welfare uh, pro programs, food stamps or FEMA. Family and friends and churches took care of people in need. That's foreign to us today. A good illustration is when Katrina hit. What did the people cry out? 
What is the government going to do? The government didn't do enough. hundred years ago, government didn't get involved in any of that. In fact, they had no constitutional right to do it. Family, friends, and churches met the needs. And that's the way the Bible has designed it also. Foreign to us today. There was no EPA, OSHA, FBI, CIA, BATF, DHS. That's the Department of Homeland Security, by the way. There was no NATO, CETO, UN, USDA, BLM. That's the Bureau of Land Management. No HUD, FCC, FTC, INS, FEMA, DOT, DOE. <laughs> IRS, IMF, no World Bank or World Court. And again, I'm just mentioning a few. If you could calculate the expense of all of these agencies and departments, it would be astronomical. The amount of people that are involved in this is unseemly. And yet no one, none of these even existed a hundred years ago. What is the biblical view of the relationship between a Christian and government? There are three basic viewpoints. The first one is, God has given unlimited authority to those who govern over us, and we are to submit to them without question and to obey every law, regardless of how odious, oppressive, or immoral it may be. There are people out there that believe this. Now, out of the three, I think this is the easiest one to dispense with, because as, you, as you'll see with the notes that follow, there is no authority under the sun that is unlimited. That's going to be our point when we get to verse number one. All authority delegated by God is limited. The authority of parents, husbands, pastors, bosses, bosses teachers, and those in government is limited by God. So God delegates authority in all areas of human life. One area happens to be in the civil realm, the civil government. And it's no different than any other delegated authority by God. It is always limited. Well, what happens when government considers their authority unlimited? Well, remember we had the statistics just to suffice it to say that in over the last century, over 89 million people were murdered by their own government. That's what happens when the government considers themselves the highest authority and that authority being unlimited. And that 89 million, by the way, is considered a very conservative low figure. God is sovereign and has ultimate authority in the universe, but even his Authority is limited by his perfect attributes. I want you to think for that just a moment. Even God, who is the ultimate authority in the universe, he is sovereign. But even his authority is limited by his perfect attributes. In other words, God does not have the authority to be unjust. 
because of his perfect attribute of justice. He doesn't have the authority to be untruthful. He can't tell a, tell a lie. It's impossible because of his attribute of veracity. And I could go on and on. So does it make sense if even God's authority, who is the ultimate authority, is limited by his own attributes? Certainly, he is not going to delegate men with fallen natures to have unlimited authority over, over other men. Well, that was my next point. <laughs> Would God give unlimited power to men with fallen natures to rule over us and then condemn us for resisting when they abuse us? Does that sound what a just and righteous God would do? Viewpoint number two. God has given only limited authority to government, and there are times when one may refuse to submit to governing authorities in matters concerning faith. That could be referred to as biblical civil disobedience. And there are many cases in the Bible, in fact, I have some of them listed in the next point or two, where there were people who refused to submit to tyranny, refused to submit to things that uh, were outside of their realm of authority, and God blessed them for it. Now, this, please know this. This is not a solicitation for anyone to foment a revolution, to be part of a revolution, or try to overthrow the government. That is not acceptable by God, and it is forbidden in the Bible. But there are cases in the Bible where God blessed those who stood up against tyranny and resisted. Christian theologian Charles Hodge said, we are to obey all that is in actual authority over us, whether their authority be legislative or usurped, whether they are just or unjust, end of quote. And I take big issue with this, not against Mr. Hodge, I don't even know him, but I, get a, I, I take issue with that quote. He believes that governmental authority is superior to the authority of one's individual conscience. How can we please God if we act against our own conscience? And how can we... Be true to our conscience if we are required to obey every law, even unjust laws. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says, Whatever is not of faith, in other words, a conviction from one's own conscience, is sin. We are to not be hypocrites. We're not to play games. We are to make decisions and live our lives according to our individual conscience, according to Romans 14.23. If Mr. Hodge is correct, the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights should not be honored but condemned. For both recognize that every individual has God-given rights in which no one, not even the state, is free to ignore. Should our founding fathers be celebrated for resisting tyranny of King George III or repudiated for resisting the authority over them? Some would say they were guilty of civil disobedience and were sinning against God. Now, here's what I'm trying to, to, to show. 
And I hadn't heard anybody else do this, and I know that I probably am putting my head on the chopping block by bringing this up. But there is a hypocrisy. There are those who celebrate the 4th of July. They pop firecrackers and they laud the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. They're so thankful that they have the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms. And yet, the next sentence out of their mouth is that, oh, well, we have to submit to all laws unless they're issues of faith. In other words, if the government comes in and forbids you to pray, if the government comes in and forbids you to witness to other people, a person that's a, that adheres to viewpoint number two would say, you have the right to resist and not submit to those mandates only if they go counter to issues of faith. If your conscience says, according to your reading of the Bible, your understanding that you are mandated by God to pray, to give the gospel, then if anyone, I don't care who they are, comes in and says, no, we don't allow that, you are free to not submit to that particular mandate. But what I'm saying, and what we'll see when we get to the third point, what about issues of freedom and issues of justice? Do we have that same right with regards to those issues? And for anyone who says, no, it's only issues of faith, those like Mr. Hodge, then if they were true to what is in their soul and what they believe, they would not celebrate the 4th of July. Indeed, they would mourn over it because they were out of line and going against God. They were sinning in doing so. You, have to, you can't have it both ways. You have to be consistent. Should our founding fathers be celebrated for resisting the tyranny of King George or repudiated? Not all civil disobedience is legitimate. But there are cases of legitimate civil disobedience which may be called biblical civil disobedience. And I'm on perfectly solid ground calling it that because that's what it was. Now, that's not advocating civil disobedience in any way other than making the point that there were cases of it in the Bible. There are several examples. Here's a few. Exam, uh, Exodus 1, 15 through 20. Joshua 2, 1 through 18. Esther 5. Daniel 3, 1 through 30. Daniel 6. Matthew 2, 1 through 13. Acts 5, 29. In fact, in that last one, we have the Apostle Peter said, I shall obey God rather than man. Biblical civil disobedience and revolution are not the same. They're not the same thing. Because civil disobedience is resistance, which is defensive, whereas revolution is aggression, which is offensive in nature. God does, God does not advocate nor condone revolution. Now, there's something that I have to point out that a lot of people get confused about. What is commonly called the Revolutionary War was not a revolution and should be called a war of independence. They were not revolting against England. They did not attack England. They weren't trying to overthrow England. 
They were, could no longer suffer the abuses and tyranny and just wanted to be left alone. That is not a revolution. It shouldn't be called a revolution. Also, the war that is commonly known as the Civil War or the war between the states wasn't a revolution either. Nor was it a civil war or a war between states. Do you understand what I'm saying? In a civil war, you have, like in the banana republics down in, in Central America and South America, you have the people trying to overthrow the government. And there are coups. Those are revolutions. And they call it sometimes civil war. That's not what happened to the South. The South no longer could abide the tyranny of the North, and they seceded, which they had the right to do according to the Declaration of Independence, and they withdrew. They did not invade the North. In fact, the North invaded them. And it wasn't a war between the states because they formed their own government. The Confederate States of America was a nation. It wasn't part of the United States any, any longer. So it's a misnomer. It shouldn't be called the war between the states because it was a war between two countries. And it wasn't a revolution. In both wars, people refused to further tolerate the tyranny over them and were forced to defeat themselves, to defend themselves when they were invaded. That is not a revolution. So we have the question here, do Christians have the freedom to resist the state only in matters of faith? What about matters of freedom and justice? Can Christians legitimately resist tyranny on those grounds? I don't know of anybody that's teaching this these days. I don't know of anybody that's even bringing this to the forefront. But we desperately need to know this as our government gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and our liberties are vanishing. Viewpoint number three, God limits the authority of government not only in matters of faith, but also in matters of freedom. This certainly was the viewpoint of our founding fathers. This is what they believed. God has given all mankind unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and property. The purpose of the government is to respect and protect those rights. The purpose of government is not to be super nanny. It's to stay out of our business, let free enterprise flourish, and protect us from those who would harm us from without other countries and those who would harm us from within. When the government abuses those rights, it loses its right to govern. Resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. This became a slogan, a mantra of the colonists. Now, the colonists did not believe they were going against God by embracing these principles set forth above and asked for his blessing upon declaring their independence from tyranny. Were they wrong? Should we celebrate or mourn the 4th of July? There is a common mistake people make when they consider Romans 13, 1 through 7. They think that these verses direct people to submit to government no matter how tyrannical or evil. But this is a gross misapplication. 
They fail to recognize that these verses depict a government operating properly as a minister of God for good. And to that, it is what the people are directed to submit. What should Christians do when their own government becomes their enemy? Do they have any recourse? Many believe the solution to uh, the solution is to vote the criminals out of office. But what if nearly every office holder and candidate running for office are liars? You wind up with what do you wind up with when you vote? For the lesser of two evils, you still wind up with evil. Now, I didn't have this quote before, but I added this quote here that I thought was really good. This is by Ralph Boryayinsky. I'm saying that the best I can. I, that's a shot anyway. This is what he says. For years, I have been voting for and supporting minor party candidates. People ask, why do I always pick a loser and waste my vote? I make the poor souls think twice when I tell them, no, I am picking a winner who will lose. But you, my friends, have been picking losers who always win. <laughs> Exodus 18.21 says, Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands and hundreds and fifties and of tens. In other words, the Bible has given us criteria as to how we are to select people who are going to have rule over us. People do not choose their leaders these days by the qualities given above. And here's a question for you. How many politicians running for office fear God? are men of truth and hate dishonest gain. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States of America, and the Bill of Rights are the safeguards we have against our own government enslaving us. When the government is no longer bound by the chains of the Constitution, there is tyranny and there is no longer any freedom. Only the foolish or the naive think that kings and governments will restrain themselves. But when people allow government officials to routinely break their oath of office without holding them accountable, freedom is lost. And that's what's happened. There are those, the, the great majority, who have broken their oaths repeatedly and they are not held accountable. Now here's, you notice this is in bold. This is the only point that I have in bold. So weigh it very carefully. But how can Christians hold government officials accountable if they believe the Bible requires them to submit to tyranny? You all know that once a person is in power, they do anything they can in order to keep that power, in fact, even to gain more power. That is the nature of man. Our founding fathers knew that. 
That's why they developed a constitution. Thomas Jefferson says, bind them with the chains of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But if people take an oath of office before God with their hand on the Bible and promise to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and turn right around and never give that another thought and break their oath and the people do not hold them accountable, you wind up with what we have today. That's why this is so important. Because many people go to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and say, oh, we have to obey the government no matter what. And we're going to see that is a misunderstanding of the Scriptures, which we've exegeted up to verse 3 already. We are compelled to ask how it is that so much corruption, unlawfulness, evil acts, and government encroachment upon individual rights came about in the land. The old common law, along with the rights of life, liberty, and property, have eroded away because the religion of the people has eroded away. By Charles A. Weissman, Life, Liberty, and Property. Mary, you and your staff can leave now if you'd like to. Start making preparations. The rest of you, I want you to stay plugged in. Okay? I'm not going to talk while they're leaving because you wouldn't listen anyway. Maybe some. The blame is always on the people because the people get the government they deserve. Many early English legal scholars, such as John Locke, had a profound impact on the American thought. Locke claimed that the Word of God as fundamental law, which is to be utilized as, quote, a rule of righteousness to influence our lives as a concrete means of checking arbitrary government. I'm going to demonstrate, as I already have to a degree, that in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, that the Bible itself puts severe limits on government. And a lot of people miss that. They misconstrue it. I'm just getting cranked up, and yet now it's time for me to end. Because something that we must address before we conclude this service, is to address those who don't know what's going to happen to them after they die. They may hope that they're saved, or they may be working their way to heaven. And so I have something to say to anyone that is in this congregation that is of that mindset. Now, as I address these people, I would like everyone please to bow your heads. The reason I'm asking you to bow your head is because there has to be privacy. I'm talking about the relationship between a Christian and government, but now I'm talking about a relationship between a person and God. I'm going to give you the best news that you will ever hear, ever. And that is that eternal salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You can't work for it. The way that you acquire it is simply by believing something. 
The believing is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who went to the cross on your behalf. He died. He was buried. He was resurrected. And now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust in Him and Him alone. You can't work for it. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can sell it right now for all eternity, this day, this moment. You can know that you have eternal life because the Bible says eternal life comes through simply believing in Jesus Christ, trusting in His atonement on the cross rather than your own works. You can do it inaudibly. God knows what you're thinking right this moment. And all you have to do is say, I am trusting in Jesus Christ, not my own works. And in that moment, you're born again. You are a royal family member of God. And your ticket to heaven is guaranteed, all because of God's grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have given us this time. We desperately need to know what our relationship, biblically speaking, should be with our government. We pray that you will help us to think as individuals and to focus upon what your mighty word has to say and give us the discernment as to what to think and what to do. For we pray these things in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.